Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the show where I take a deep dive into the stories of the most interesting, abandoned, and defunct theme parks and amusements in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. This week, I've got a question for you. What do a railway robber baron from the 1800s and a small construction engine have to do with this podcast? You'll have to listen to fill in the dots. This week, I'm going in-depth on the history of the old iron horse called the C.P. Huntington, in her career from 1863 to present, and the 400-plus chance miniature versions that have been built since 1960, possibly the most popular miniature train for theme parks and zoos out there. I began putting down roots for this episode a long time ago. I was looking at pictures of miniature theme park trains on Google. I don't really remember why. I just remember I was doing it. And I started seeing all of these trains that looked really, really similar at all different parks across the world. And the only thing that was really different were the paint schemes and the numbers on the sides. And so I started casually making a list. The numbers of the trains and where they were located, and I tried to figure out what was going on. I later learned that these were called C.P. Huntingtons, but I still had the question, what was the deal with all of these park trains? And so that is the story that I'm going to tell to you today. The story of the C.P. Huntington trains begins way back. We've got to go back to the 1800s for this one. It begins with a member of the Big Four, This was a group of four tycoons who originally built the Central Pacific Railroad. We start our story with a great man from the 1800s, the robber baron Collis Potter Huntington. Now, Collis had a nose for buying and selling. If you're at all a fan of Star Trek, he would have made a fine Ferengi. He was very concerned with profit. Born in 1821 on the East Coast, Collis came westward in his late 20s, making money by selling supplies during the California Gold Rush. And he was an entrepreneurial man, making his way up in the world by moving on to hardware store ownership before setting his sights on the quote-unquote railroad issue. And Collis eventually invested in this new Central Pacific Railroad Company, along with the other members of the Big Four. And these were Mark Hopkins... Leland Stanford, yes, of Stanford University, and Charles Crocker. Ultimately, their railroad in California connected with the railroads from the east to finally make transcontinental travel possible. So starting in 1861 in Sacramento, California, the Central Pacific Railroad began building eastwards until it met the Union Pacific Railroad at Promontory, Utah, in 1869. And this was the official joining of the two railroads to make that transcontinental railroad. And they marked it with this ceremonial golden spike. It was actually a spike that was made out of gold that was hammered in uh, to the railroad ties, which is pretty cool. And that spike itself is actually now on display at Stanford University. Of course, it's really hard to overstate how much of a big deal the Transcontinental Railroad was for the time. 
And I mean, in today's world, we have airplanes and fast cars and all kinds of wild stuff. We can get coast to coast, no big deal. But back then, you had to go months long sea voyages around South America's Cape Horn, or you had to take rickety and dangerous wagon rides across the United States. So this new coast-to-coast train travel allowed people to reach the opposite coast of the United States in about eight days. This was a huge game-changer. Collis Potter Huntington, of course, made some excellent profit as part of the railroad business. And after the transcontinental railroad joining, he did continue through the rest of his life as a railroad tycoon. He ultimately got involved in the Southern Pacific Railroad line as well. He actually ended up a lobbyist, bribing politicians and congressmen about train-related issues. And he was reportedly one of the most hated railway men in the country by the end of his life due to his preference for profit over people. According to his contemporaries, he was, quote, possessed of the morals of a shark, end quote. So now that you know a little bit about the man... Let's get into the story of the locomotive that bore his name, because honestly, that's far more interesting. This is, confusingly, the C.P. Huntington. Quote, In the early days of locomotive building, it was considered a great achievement when that pygmy engine with a flaring superfluity of a smokestack, the C.P. Huntington, was put on the road, end quote, wrote a 1926 newspaper op-ed. Stories from a century ago often seem to bring up the wild adventures of these, quote, monarchs of the West, end quote, as these early iron horse engines were called. What is an iron horse? An iron horse is the term that was reportedly coined by the early Native Americans when they first saw the steam trains. This originated in the early 1800s when horses still powered most machinery. Nowadays, It's an outdated term. But back then, that's what the steam locomotives were called, iron horses. Apparently, all of these vintage engines were known for having interesting stories or thrilling escapes. And of course, the C.P. Huntington was one of these. Collis Potter Huntington needed some engines for his transcontinental line that he was building. But this was actually during the middle of the Civil War, And there wasn't a lot available. There were only these two small, identical engines. Of course, all of the manufacturing was done on the East Coast, and he had to get his engines to the West Coast. These two engines had been originally purchased for a different railway back East, but the original purchaser never paid for them, which is why they were just sitting around when Collis Potter Huntington needed some trains. So he went ahead and purchased what surprise is the C.P. Huntington and her sister. The engines shipped from the Cook Locomotive Works, which are also called Danforth Cook, in New Jersey, and they went all the way to San Francisco in a journey of 131 days around Cape Horn. Can you imagine? On a boat. Doesn't that sound like fun to get from New York to California? I don't think that sounds fun. The C.P. Huntington was number 277 out of the Locomotive Works, and was given the number three for the Central Pacific Railroad. The identical sister engine was manufactured number 325 out of the factory. This one's less popular in cultural references, but she was named the T.D. Judah and given the number four, 
in honor of the CP Railroad's first chief engineer who surveyed a passable route over the Sierra Nevada mountains. Both of these engines were put to use to help build Huntington's Transcontinental Railway. Now, bear with me, we're going to get into some technical train stuff. In technical details, the CP Huntington is a 4-2-4T. I'm going to give you the layman's definition of my understanding of what this means, but I'm not a true train junkie, perhaps yet given how often that I am talking about trains on this podcast. I'm just a research nerd, so please forgive any errors. I already know that I'm going to get letters about calling it a train and not a locomotive. Please be kind, my train friends. 4-2-4 is train shorthand for the configuration of the wheels on the locomotive. So for the CP Huntington, the first number, 4, is the four leading wheels that are on two different axles. The second number is 2, two power driving wheels on one axle. And on the CP Huntington, these are the big wheels. And then the last number is four again. Four trailing wheels on two axles that support the tank, or the tender. There were other trains beyond the CP Huntington that also bore this configuration, but apparently colloquially, the 4-2-4T is known as a Huntington. Oh, and I haven't mentioned the T. The T is a denotation for the tank. And for the CP Huntington, the T is a side tank. Again, I'm a layman research nerd. I'm not a train buff yet. But keep listening because we're going to talk about trains for another like 30 minutes. So, the CP Huntington. She made it all the way to California. And what happened? She did good work on the Central Pacific Railway. She was this little construction engine. Not only was she used in construction, she also did pull some passenger cars, and notably she pulled the first passenger cars over the newly completed Western Pacific Railway from Sacramento to Stockton, both in California, in August of 1869. So a few years later, there was some merging with between Southern Pacific and Central Pacific. So in 1871, Southern Pacific purchased our friend the CP Huntington engine and renumbered it to number one. Now, under Southern Pacific operation, things were not so rosy for the CP Huntington. In 1872, the train actually suffered a massive collision with a larger train, and the engineer in the CP Huntington was actually killed. The San Jose Mercury, June 7, 1872, noted, quote, the construction locomotive is small, and when the collision occurred, the larger engine went completely through the smaller, taking in steam boxes, cylinders, smokestack, driving wheels, boilers, etc., and leaving it a mass of ruins. End quote. It took several years before the CP Huntington engine was rebuilt. However, she was eventually rebuilt. In May of 1875, the following account of the rebuilt C.P. Huntington appeared in the Minor Scientific Press of Nevada. This was most likely taken from an article that originally appeared in a bigger San Francisco or Sacramento newspaper. Quote, certainly a peculiar looking craft it is, referring to the C.P.H. The engine is of a most unique pattern, there being but one or two others like it on the coast. End quote. 
However, the CP Huntington was only put to limited use once she was rebuilt. Around the turn of the century, the engine spent some time in storage before being rebuilt as a weed burner. After all, someone's got to clear the tracks. At this time, all of the engines were steam engines. And so they were burning wood and spitting out chunks of burning coal and wood out of their out of their smokestacks sometimes. And so what you had to do was make sure that the area around the tracks was kept clear of weeds and leaves and other other vegetation because otherwise the tracks were going to catch on fire and start really big fires, which they did not want, obviously. And so this is, back then you had to have weed burners to clear more of the tracks than you would see in a modern train situation. Anyways, this reportedly did not last long either. The CP Huntington was rebuilt again back to her original configuration, no longer a weed burner. And she pretty much bounced around back and forth out of storage in Sacramento at the Southern Pacific Machine Shops. And there she was put on a platform to display inside the shops. She was pushed into official service retirement around 1900. While this bouncing around, instead of actually using what seems to be a perfectly suitable, serviceable train locomotive. Well, apparently this 424 locomotive design had significant issues. Reportedly, the single driving axle was too light and didn't carry the full weight of the engine's trailing rear end. And this meant that the engine could not reliably pull heavy train loads, particularly not on gradients. And additionally, it's said that the water tank was too small. So the train, any, any 424 locomotive like the CP Huntington, couldn't go very far because otherwise they'd consume all of their water. And something else that's very hard to convey from all of this discussion so far is how small the CP Huntington engine is. Technical schematics indicate that she's 7 and 3 quarters feet wide, 12 and a half feet tall, and 29 and a half feet long. That's small. For comparison, a modern average city bus is approximately 8 feet wide, 11 feet tall, and roughly 35 to 45 feet long. So the CP Huntington is the same size but shorter than your average city bus. That's small. And not only is this small to the modern audience, but this was small even in the late 1800s. Some of my favorite pictures of the C.P. Huntington I've found during my research are those where she is posed next to a larger, more modern engine. And it just looks like a child's toy. It is there. We'll get into this a lot during this episode, but the C.P. Huntington, there's just something about that weird smokestack. There's something about the small size, but this classic, like, train silhouette. She gets inside your head. I don't know what it is. Anyhow, as the years went on, obviously as times go on, loads that needed to be hauled on the train tracks grew larger. And so the small CP Huntington could not handle the requirements for the larger, more modern loads of the times as they rolled on. I mean, she was small when she was originally purchased. With the need for bigger locomotives, the small 424s were left in storage 
on back spurs at the train yard or high up on trestles in the paint shops for longer and longer until they were all eventually scrapped, or nearly all. Now, of course, I did mention at the beginning that there was a second engine, a sister engine to the CP Huntington, and this was called the TD Judah. There's a lot less known about the Judah. She was rebuilt into a 422 configuration instead of a 424 uh, at some point in the late 1800s. There's lots of conflicting information about how the Judah ultimately met her end. Some reports indicate that the Judah worked at a sugar plantation in the Hawaiian Islands, or the Sandwich Islands. Others say she was sold to the Wellington Colliery Company up in British Columbia sometime around 1889. Ultimately, though, there is a general consensus that the Judah was scrapped sometime in between 1912 and 1914. I did find some 1922 contemporaneous texts that did indicate she was still in active service, but beyond these couple of books that I saw, nothing else I could find would substantiate this. There was another train engine, the Central Pacific 93, that was also converted to a 422 configuration. And so some people online speculate that the source of these confusing reports is people mixing up these two engines. Either way, the TD Judah is a little bit of a mystery. You might be wondering, as sort of an interesting sidebar, why the stories of the CP Huntington and the TD Judah are sort of light with details and mixed in with a lot of confusion. Well, as so often happens, this is a tale of fire damage. The 1906 San Francisco fires were the result of a devastating earthquake that destroyed nearly 80% of the city. And among the many, many losses from this incredible devastation were those of the railroad shops on the West Coast. These were things like records, drawings, and photographs. Not only that, but a decade later in 1917, another fire in the Sacramento train shops destroyed more railway documentation. So essentially, what we have available to us now from the time of these iron horses is what was saved by families of employees and the occasional state library record outside of the main cities. This is the tip of the iceberg compared to what might have originally been. So back to the end of the working service record, we'd been talking about the scrapping of the T.D. Judah and the retirement of the C.P. Huntington. Now, the C.P. Huntington was nearly scrapped in 1914 as well, but she was saved this fate by the decision to have her put on display for the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition. This was one of the world's fairs. It was meant to celebrate the completion of the Panama Canal, but really it was there to showcase San Francisco's recovery after the 1906 earthquake almost a decade before. At the World's Fair, the C.P. Huntington was displayed alongside a much larger locomotive, a 2442 Mallet. This was meant to drive home to the visiting audiences the massive changes in railway needs over the prior 50 years. And it did so very well. This is one of those images that I referenced a little bit earlier in the podcast. The mid-1800s C.P. Huntington looked practically like a child's toy next to this large, modern 1900s locomotive. 
And this began the history of the original C.P. Huntington in its new life as a display piece and a sort of icon showcasing a different bygone era. In January of 1920, national papers reported the C.P. Huntington being put on display in a place of honor outside of Sacramento's train shops. They called her, quote, California's oldest locomotive, end quote. And in a bit of revisionist history, the papers declared that she had been the first locomotive to ever operate in California, a claim which almost certainly cannot be true. Tall tale or not, the C.P. Huntington was getting a rest and getting some of the accolades that were coming to her. She next went on major display at the Days of 49, celebrating the 1849 gold rush. This was not just a poem by Joaquin Miller that was turned into a song by Bob Dylan. No, in this context, I'm talking about the May 1922 celebrations in California that commemorated the gold rush. Old number one, with the C.P. Huntington, of course, was cleaned up and hooked to a flat car with seats. She pulled passengers around the city for a modest fare of 49 cents. After this point, she was reportedly kept in better repair, and she participated pretty regularly in other displays and showcases throughout the 1920s through the 1930s. For instance, she was part of the filming for the 1924 movie The Iron Horse, which was the highest grossing movie of that year. Grauman's Egyptian Theater, which is a lavish movie palace in downtown Hollywood that opened in 1922, this place held the premiere of The Iron Horse. And it's pretty interesting, during the movie's run there, while the movie was premiering there, the little C.P. Huntington was actually pulled over and parked in the forecourt of the theater facing the street in order to help promote the film. It's incredible. There's one single picture of this online. And it's a shot down the street. You can see all these buildings. And if you look closely, it's so hard to see. But as you look, you just see this tiny little, the, the little front light, the little smokestack just poking out. And it's just the weirdest and most interesting thing. Having a train engine parked to display your movie. Like, that's just great. The C.P. Huntington went to state fairs. She dedicated bridges. She dedicated railway depots, etc., And when she wasn't out on display at an event, she sat in front of the rail yard there in Sacramento under a small pavilion. In December of 1935, she was even driven on a flat car down to New Orleans and was actually the first train to cross the newly opened Huey P. Long Bridge, which crosses the Mississippi River several kilometers upriver from the city of New Orleans. In 1939, the C.P. Huntington participated in the opening ceremonies for the Los Angeles Union Station, the new train station. The occasion was observed by Ward Kimball. Now, if this name sounds familiar to you, that's probably because you've run in some Disney circles before. Ward Kimball was one of Walt Disney's storied nine old men. Kimball was an animator. He was responsible for the creation of some of our most beloved Walt Disney characters. He did Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio, he did Jack and Gus from Cinderella, and he did the Cheshire Cat from Alice in Wonderland, among many, many others. Kimball was also a railway fan. He had his own narrow-gauge railway collection, which he ran in his three-acre backyard. 
And reportedly, it was Kimball's train enthusiasm that bumped up against Walt Disney's to help encourage Disney to actually install the iconic Disney Railroad there at Disneyland when it opened in 1955. I'm sure you're not going to be surprised, but this is one of many rabbit holes we'll experience in this episode. Why are we going down into this Ward Kimball rabbit hole? He was a very interesting man, particularly if you're into Disney. But why did I bring him up here? Yes. Kimball was on hand that day to observe the opening ceremonies for the Los Angeles Union Station in 1939, because he was a train buff. Not only did he see the ceremonies, he filmed them on 16mm color film, incredibly expensive in 1939. He captured the only known footage of the opening, and this video is available on YouTube. I'll link it in the show notes. Decked out in brilliant red and green paint, Southern Pacific's engine number one was a relic from a different time, even back in 1939. The little engine was already 76 years old at that point. It can be seen puffing smoke, wheels churning, steaming down Alameda Street in downtown Los Angeles. It's, it's really an incredible sight. What else is incredible is that this was likely one of, if not the last time, the boiler of the venerable C.P. Huntington was fired and moved under her own steam. The last known year of operation for the actual C.P. Huntington engine was 1939. The C.P. Huntington was towed out for a few more railway events in the late 50s and 60s, but pretty much she sat on static display in the Sacramento Park in front of the train yard. Ultimately, the railway donated the C.P. Huntington to the state of California in 1964. She continued to sit on display, this time at the Stockton Fairgrounds, for a few more years. Later on, after a refurbishment at the Southern Pacific Sacramento train shops, the C.P. Huntington was moved to an exterior display at the Central Pacific Railroad Passenger Station. And then, in 1981, she moved to her current location the newly opened California State Railroad Museum, where she still sits today on display in 2019. She was restored to her 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition appearance, covered in complicated and artistic gold leaf highlights. And interestingly, they knew, I mean, not only did they have pictures of how she looked, but the newspapers from the early 1920s and 1930s actually devoted several newspaper inches to descriptions of the paint schemes of the old wood-burning locomotives. What a luxurious different time this was. It was so refreshing to be doing my research for this episode and see a newspaper devoting column inches to the different types of gold leaf and artistic flourishes used to decorate the C.P. Huntington. It was... It was Quite a breath of fresh air. The C.P. Huntington engine is reportedly the only surviving standard steam engine of its type. The Danforth Cook factory produced well over 3,000 engines in the Iron Horse era between 1852 and 1926. Of these, only 11 reportedly remain in existence now in 2019. One of which is the C.P. Huntington. She is the only surviving 424 model remaining. Reportedly, the C.P. Huntington locomotive will never operate under its own steam again. 
the California State Railroad Museum made investigations as to the state of the C.P. Huntington in 1998. Reportedly, quote, the boiler shell is too worn out to be safely steamed again without major repairs and replacements that would compromise the state of the otherwise intact artifact, end quote. The C.P. Huntington is the second oldest locomotive owned by the California State Railroad Museum and is one of the older surviving locomotives worldwide. As I'm sure your mind is wondering, what is the oldest known locomotive? That's the 1813 Puffing Billy, which currently lives at London Science Museum. This engine is some 50 years older than our heroine, the C.P. Huntington. The California State Railroad Museum currently owns eight of the 45 pre-1880s locomotives that are still existing in the U.S., including the C.P. Huntington. And the C.P. Huntington silhouette even serves as the logo for the museum. Now, I've already told you where I'm going with this episode, but if you're ready to really pin the dots together as to how all this locomotive talk ties into the theme of the podcast, let's get ready for our galaxy brain moment. In the mid-20th century, in Wichita, Kansas, a man by the name of Harold Chance was building miniature steam trains. First, under the Ottaway Amusement Company name, Chance incorporated his own company as Chance Manufacturing in 1961. A year earlier, in 1960, Chance had begun production on the first version of a new miniature train. It was the beginning of something magical. According to the California State Railroad Museum, the C.P. Huntington had been displayed on at least two occasions in the 50s, the Southern Pacific Centennial Celebration in 1955 and the Salute to Steam Age in 1958. This latter event was not so much an event as it was a goodbye ceremony. This was the last run of the last steam engine of the Southern Pacific, number 4294. And apparently during this event, the two engines, the CP Huntington and the 4294, were placed side by side in the park in Sacramento to mark the beginning and the end of the steam era in Southern Pacific's history. Not only were there the CP Huntington being displayed at these events, but scale models of the train were also reported nationally around this time in the papers. This included a 1951 half-size model by a man named Jack Collier and a much smaller 1.5-inch scale rideable model by a man named Bob Harper. Oh, and there was this very large model that was made entirely out of fruit. Of course, being a person interested in trains, it's highly likely that Harold Chance saw news reports of these events, particularly the reports on the end of the steam era for the Southern Pacific in 1958. And like a train at a switch, we can see the leap that Harold Chance might have taken, because he began building a miniature C.P. Huntington train for use in amusement parks. Chance's C.P. Huntington was a one-third scale model of the original. His miniature version was faithful to the original as far as looks. It was handmade. It was incredibly detailed. The little steam engine had the unique design of the original, with that iconic stack and that interesting wheel arrangement, the 424. From a mechanical perspective, his model did make some changes. Apparently, the big drive wheels, the big ones 
are false. They can be removed without affecting the locomotive's operation, which apparently many zoos and parks have actually done in order to make maintenance easier. We'll get there. And so his engines power the drive shafts on the front and rear trucks of the locomotive instead. And of course, gone to with steam power, Chance's model used gasoline for fuel. He delivered his first engine to Joyland Park there in Wichita, Kansas in 1961. Joyland's iconic train served that park from 1961 until 2006. Quote, Joyland's train really launched Chance Rides, end quote, said Larry Breitenstein, national sales director at Chance Rides, sometime later. The train at Joyland was last seen publicly when the park closed in 2006. Reportedly, it is in the hands of a private collector local to Wichita. Of course, Joyland C.P. Huntington was not Chance's last miniature C.P. Huntington. The company has produced over 400 miniature C.P. Huntington trains as of the time of this recording. 400 plus trains over about 60 years. Some basic statistics on these trains. Engines run about $200,000 and coaches run around $60,000. Prices from Wikipedia, date unclear. The trains are all a narrow gauge. Most CP Huntingtons are 24-inch gauge. However, some of the earliest CP Huntington models were a 20-inch gauge. And interestingly, Chance still provides individual parts for the CP Huntington in their sales inventory. This is not surprising, perhaps, because the CP Huntington is reportedly Chance's most popular ride. To some in the amusement park world, the train is frowned upon. It's considered a cookie cutter train, which I don't like. That's both sad and inaccurate. Each engine has its own modifications, its own personality, and each engine runs differently. And ultimately, for a general audience, the CP Huntington is incredibly popular because it's a train. Who doesn't love to go on a train ride? Now, I told you there were 400 engines. I'm not going to talk about every single engine on this podcast. That would be a wild, very long episode, and this episode is already very long. But I will hit a few highlights and share a few of the more interesting stories that I dug into while I was researching. Why should you care? Why did I even do this episode in the first place? It's all about those rabbit holes of research and those giant numbers on the sides of the locomotives. The best, and sometimes the worst, thing about these trains is that they often, but not always, have the engine number visible in very large numbers on the side of the train. This number is usually, like I said, not always, the locomotive number manufactured from the factory. This is the reason I got into this topic in the first place. I got sucked down that Google image search rabbit hole, wondering why there were all of these similar looking trains at parks and zoos around the country and around the world, and why they had the numbers that they did. A minute ago, I said usually the numbers reflect the manufacturing number from the factory. It's not always true. Some parks remove the numbers, some parks never have the numbers installed, and some parks change the numbers to reflect internal numbering schemes, confusing historians all along. 
The only way to accurately know which number a particular train is would be to look at the builder's plate, which is attached to each locomotive and does contain the serial number. But sometimes these too have been removed or have become illegible. Additionally, these are robust little trains. Engine number two has been in continuous operation for almost 60 years at the time of this recording. Given the hardy nature of the trains, they're actually often sold from park to park, zoo to zoo, etc. This often leads to confusion about the trains as when they're in storage or in the hands of private owners, their locations are unknown or unclear. And of course, some of the engines have been scrapped. There's engine number 29, formerly of the St. Louis Zoo, that was involved in an accident that more or less destroyed the entire engine. Others are nearly scrapped, sitting as shells, such as the number 8, which currently sits as a red shell without wheels on the dirt at New Orleans City Park. Should this podcast ever make money and therefore allow me to have more time to do episodes, it would be fantastic to do a history on each of the parks associated with a CP Huntington. I cannot count the number of times during my research for this episode that I would get stuck down a rabbit hole for a train or a park or a zoo or an attraction. I'm not even going to include a list, the list, of C.P. Huntington's in my show notes. The list is the holy grail of C.P. Huntington research. Think about how satisfying it is to look at a spreadsheet with the number of the engine, and then just go on down and where it's been and how it's been and what happened to the train and what colors it is. I don't need to do that for you. It's already been done. I'm going to direct you to the incredible Facebook group, CP Huntington Train Project. You can find this amazing Excel spreadsheet and some very smart people and a lot of really cool photos. Anyway, enough preamble, let's talk about some of the engines. Each engine has its own story, and here are a few of them. The number two is the oldest train currently in public operation. Engine number two lives at Storyland in Glen, New Hampshire, a small family amusement park aimed at the under-teen set. This park actually has five CP Huntingtons. They have number two, painted red, number four, painted blue, number 14 in storage, number 18 used as a backup, and number 47 painted green. There are a lot of interesting things about the Storyland engines that we could get into at another time. Like I said, each of these is a big rabbit hole into interesting historical research. Eventually we'll get there. For today, we're talking about number two and its number on the very front of the engine. Every C.P. Huntington has a circular plate with the year 1863 written on it, and this is placed on the front of the engine. And that makes sense because that was the year the original C.P. Huntington was manufactured. There's only one exception, and that's C.P. Huntington number two, the red engine from Storyland named Robert D. Morrill. It actually says 1861 on the front. It's a bit of a mystery why this engine has this number. One possibility is that this is a reference to the incorporation date for the Central Pacific Railroad, which of course was where the original C.P. Huntington first operated. But it's not clear why only one engine has the 1861 plate. 
and why it would be only number two and not number one. That's one small mystery about one train. We are not done yet. This is a long episode. The trains with the smallest numbers are the oldest, and some of these have been through multiple hands. Let's take the case of number 34, and I will illustrate how you might go down a rabbit hole of fascination with just a single train engine. Engine number 34 was a 1964 model, part of the Coney Island and Lake Como Railroad in Cincinnati. It was painted light blue and red, which is considered the standard color scheme. And it was called Mad Anthony Wayne. Now, Coney Island in Cincinnati is a park with an incredibly long history, which, again, we may get to one of these days. For now, we're just talking about the train. Engine number 34 operated with engine number 35, George Rogers Clark. Both trains and the amusement park delighted guests there at the site of a former apple orchard until the year 1971. Coney Island moved to a new location and renamed itself Kings Island. This was a larger site further away from river floods that had constantly plagued the original Coney Island location throughout its history. Most of the rides from Coney Island actually moved over to Kings Island, But Kings Island already had trains. They had these larger crown models. And so they didn't need these smaller C.P. Huntington engines. So the trains were sold. Number 34 was sold to the world of golf in 1971, reportedly along with the former station, which had been cut into sections in order to move it. Unfortunately, shortly after it was all installed, the nearby Florence, Kentucky sewer treatment plant overflowed in 1976 into that area. The park, including the newly installed railroad, was shut down. The train was reportedly stored in that deteriorating station for most of the next 20 years. However, it's a happy story because in the early 1990s, engine number 34 was sold to the oil ranch in Hockley, Texas. There, it was repainted black and red. The number was removed, but it still operates there as of this recording in 2019. Other notable trains belonged to public figures. Take number 235. Michael Jackson was a hugely influential public figure, of course, no matter what your stance on his personal life and the decades of abuse allegations against him. His private ranch, Neverland Ranch, was over five times the size of Disneyland. It had a zoo, a movie theater, an amusement park, and two different trains. One of these was a C.P. Huntington, number 235, a 1990 model. It was customized for Michael Jackson and had extra twinkle lights installed around the canopies of the coaches. It had extra decorations, extra paint, and even this fancy high-end sound system installed. When Jackson died and his assets were liquidated, David Helm of Helm & Son Amusements based in California purchased the CP Huntington as well as other amusement rides from the Neverland Ranch. The engine has not been seen in public since that time. Other problematic public figures had C.P. Huntington's too, like Jim Baker over at his Heritage USA Christian Disneyland. Please don't worry, Heritage USA is a whole giant episode planned for the future. 
the story of Heritage USA is absolutely wild. Although general public reporting only refers to one train at Heritage USA, it turns out that there were actually four engines that operated there. Two trains were delivered new to Heritage USA in 1979, funded by the many private donors who believed in Jim Baker's televangelism. These were 195 and 196. One of these was actually featured on the Tammy Faye Baker album cover for Moving On to Victory. The other two trains were purchased used. One was described as a shell, and the other reportedly barely ran. When the park went under in the late 80s as Baker's pyramid scheme collapsed, the amusement park assets were liquidated. 195 had been involved in a minor collision with a gate during Heritage USA's operation and suffered cosmetic damage. It also was reportedly cannibalized for parts during the park's operation in order to keep 196 running. As such, 195 was reportedly traded back to Chance Rides during the liquidation of the park in the late 80s. Chance rebuilt the locomotive and sold it. This engine is currently operating at Lakemont Park in Altoona, Pennsylvania, home of Leap the Dips, the world's oldest, still surviving, still operational roller coaster. 196, the locomotive in better shape, was purchased by private collector Moki Choate, who owned 13 or more C.P. Huntington locomotives under the business name of Big Moki Trains Incorporated. While Moki himself passed away in 2016, the business is still in operation. Big Moki Trains leases out its fleet of trains to parks and zoos around the country. Perhaps a business needs short-term extra capacity for an event, or perhaps a park just finds it more cost-effective to have the trains only during the season and outsource any maintenance costs. This, of course, does add an extra level of confusion for any C.P. Huntington history hunters, because this means that trains are rotated in and out for maintenance and might not always be at the same park. 196, then, is one of the Moki trains and was last seen operating at the Jackson Zoo in Mississippi. The other two locomotives have not been seen since. If you're in Houston and you're listening to this podcast, I hope you visited, or will visit, the Houston Downtown Aquarium. That's the home of the groundbreaking landmark C.P. Huntington No. 400, the first electric C.P. Huntington train from Chance. It was named the Electric Eel. Number 402, also an electric C.P. Huntington but with a different color scheme, actually went to the aquarium very recently in July of 2019. Both trains run through an incredible exhibit called the Shark Voyage, where the trains travel through a completely see-through tunnel with a unique view on a massive shark aquarium exhibit. Chance Rides reportedly spent quite some time perfecting their electric train. One of the few train videos they've posted on YouTube is from the fall of 2017, showing the electric prototype in a stripped-down state taking some test laps in the Chance backlot there in Wichita. It's likely not surprising considering today's environmentally conscious consumers, but it does appear that Chance will be making a big push for electric trains as the main CP Huntington going forward. Reportedly, Many places looking to make a new train purchase over the next couple of years have been inquiring about electric models. 
and it wouldn't be surprising to see the next trains be predominantly electric over the gasoline models, particularly for zoos and aquariums that are more environmentally conscious. Finally, the last in the case studies that I plan to cover today, let's talk about the St. Louis Zoo. If there were a record for the place that has had the most CP Huntington engines pass through it, that place is probably the St. Louis Zoo. The zoo has not only a deep history with the engines, they have a long history with the engines. They started with engines number 27, 28, and 29 back in 1963 and 1964. After they'd purchased these models, they caught the CP Huntington bug, and they began purchasing additional trains for what became known as the Emerson Zoo Line Railroad. Like I said, they are reportedly the business that has purchased the most trains direct from chance. And in the early years, apparently the plan was to replace their trains after 10 years of service. So when it came time to purchase the next engine, we reach the slight snag in the story. Remember how I mentioned that sometimes the big numbers on the sides of the trains don't always reflect the manufacturer's number? This is one of those times. The St. Louis Zoo wanted the numbers of their new trains to be consecutive, so they had 27, 28, and 29. So the next train that they purchased, they labeled it 30. St. Louis Zoo number 30 was not manufacturing number 30, though. And so this muddles the issue of the list significantly. And as noted, the zoo has moved through a number of different trains with their old trains being sold across the country. So this does continue to muddle and add some complexity to tracking down the history of these individual trains. All told, St. Louis Zoo has owned a total of 23 different CP Huntington trains to date. The current trains in operation at St. Louis Zoo are St. Louis Zoo number 45, Daniel Boone, which is CP Huntington number 247, St. Louis Zoo number 46, Pierre LaClaude, which is CP Huntington number 263, St. Louis Zoo number 47, Lewis and Clark, CP Huntington number 289, St. Louis Zoo number 48, the Ulysses S. Grant, which is CP Huntington's number 300 train, St. Louis Zoo number 49, the Charlton Tandy, which is the CP Huntington number 303. And finally, St. Louis Zoo number 100, Emerson, which is CP Huntington's number 362. And this one gets the slightly different number because it was purchased during the zoo's centennial. Reportedly, the Zoo Line Railroad is one of the places that is exploring an electric locomotive purchase. Apparently, the Zoo Line Railroad is reputedly the steepest of any miniature CP Huntington Railroad, and so there's some question as to whether the electric version can handle that kind of grade the same way that the gasoline versions can. Anyways, if you've got a child who's a train lover, you'll love the St. Louis Zoo. They've got a program where kids can shadow an engineer for part of the day and help drive the trains. Of course... Chance isn't the only game in town when it comes to the CP Huntington. There's another business called the Western Train Company over in California, and it builds its own variations of the 24-inch miniature engine suitable for theme parks and zoos as well. There are subtle differences between the Western Train Company versions and the Chance versions, but both are beautiful miniature trains. 
Or if an even smaller version is your speed, Little Engines is a company that makes a 1.5 inch scale model. Yep, still to this day. Remember that 1950s model written up in the newspaper by Bob Harper that I mentioned probably 35 minutes ago? Yes, that was these. Bob's miniature CP Huntington can actually also be seen on screen in the 1956 film The King and I, starring Ewell Brenner and Deborah Kerr. This episode of the podcast is running long, but the short version is that Bob Harper is another very interesting person. He was incredibly involved with the live steam engine scene through his work with the Little Engines Company after his discharge from the Army. He met up with Walt Disney in 1949 when Walt and his daughter came to the shop to look at the trains. And ultimately, Bob joined the Walt Disney Company as an Imagineer 20 years later in 1969. He had his hands in a number of different projects, notably including the trains at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, Disney Paris, and Walt Disney World's Animal Kingdom. So there you go, information on two different Disney Imagineers in an episode that, at least on the surface, has little at all to do with Disney. Isn't life fun? Of course, elsewhere in pop culture, the C.P. Huntington, or perhaps the T.D. Judah, depending on your perspective, are iconic. They're just that classic train look, and they provide inspiration for books, films, etc. The most well-known of these is the design for the little engine that could. If you think on that friendly blue engine in your mind, or look at the cover of the children's book, you might immediately see the parallels. And of course, as I've already mentioned, the logo for the California State Railway Museum is actually a silhouette of the C.P. Huntington. It's not just the classic little engine that could, though. There's actually a whole more modern series out there in recent days aimed at the elementary school and younger audience, starring zoo trains Zippy and Guido, who are C.P. Huntingtons. The best part is that Zippy and Guido are not fictional. The series is based on author Chris Chirilla's experience with the real trains, C.P. Huntington number 44 and C.P. Huntington 55, both from the Pittsburgh Zoo. I know I said I was done with case studies of individual trains, but let's just tell one more story, okay? Chirilla actually spent several years as an engineer for the 44 and 55 there at the Pittsburgh Zoo. He began spending summers as host of the train since he wasn't allowed to engineer them until age 18. At that time, the Pittsburgh Zoo train ride had been around for a while, and it was really quite dilapidated, giving out a lot of problems for the zoo and receiving very little love in return. After all, like I said, they'd been there for a while. They'd been there since 1965. Chris was instrumental in restoring the trains. He gathered together a group of train lovers, and together they cleaned up the trains, performed regular maintenance, and began finding funding from donors to keep the trains running. Eventually, Chris became the primary engineer for the Pittsburgh Zoo, in charge of their whole operation. Quote, engineering them was a dream come true, end quote, he told me. In 2010, he upgraded the train exhibit along the train route to tell the history of the Pittsburgh Zoo and breathe new life into the ride. Unfortunately, despite a new train paint job in 2011, the entire train ride was shut down indefinitely in 2013. Although the trains themselves were in good shape, the tracks at the Pittsburgh Zoo were not. The zoo did not see sufficient value in the train ride, and they were unable to find funds to repair the tracks, instead looking for a place to locate a new dinosaur exhibit. To honor Zippy, number 55, and Guido, number 44, 
Chris honored them by writing and illustrating first one and now four books about the adventures of the two trains. Quote, there were so many people who loved riding the zoo trains, so I wanted them to be able to continue to bring smiles to families for years to come. End quote. If you follow him on social media, he's recently actually been showcasing delightful hidden details from each book, such as the real-life counterparts for the cats, coaches, and other engines in the books. And Chris still loves trains today. The C.P. Huntington Facebook group, the, the repository of The List, is a project that Chris moderates along with several other train-minded folks. They're, they collect information on each of the C.P. Huntington trains. Chris now travels the world riding C.P. Huntingtons and consults with zoos and parks on all things trains, finding news trains, operations, and historical information. At the time of this recording, a private train collector has purchased the real number 44 Guido and the real number 55 Zippy, and is in the process of slowly restoring them. There's just something about the C.P. Huntington. That quirky little engine and her 400-plus quirky little chance copies. She gets in your head, she gets her hooks into you, and you can't stop falling down the rabbit hole. Is it the steam? Is it the shape of the smokestack? I don't understand it myself. I've reiterated this a few times on the podcast so far, but I'm not really a train buff. Not particularly interested in technical specs and all of that, despite how much I've talked about trains so far, especially today. But this episode on the C.P. Huntington train is the one that I've been working on the longest. If you told me 10 years ago that I'd spend pages and pages and hours and hours writing an essay about theme park train history, I would have called you mad. But there's just something about the diminutive overall size, that comically large smokestack, the proportions of the wheels. The C.P. Huntington is just such a train-looking train. She's just so interesting. She really gets in your head. There's so much interesting information out there, not only about the 400-plus chance trains, but also the namesake engine herself. Someday, I do hope to visit many of the places that I've covered on this podcast, and visiting the original C.P. Huntington on display in Northern California is definitely high on my bucket list. Chances are, do you see what I did there? that there's a C.P. Huntington at a zoo or a theme park near you. Maybe it's time to get out there and ride one soon. All aboard! Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I talked about the rich history of the C.P. Huntington steam train and its 400 modern miniature copies made by Chance Rides. I'd like to particularly thank Chris Chirilla for patiently answering my many, many questions on the C.P. Huntington trains. You should check out the Facebook group that he moderates, the C.P. Huntington Train Project. It's an exhaustive resource and an archive for the person interested in compiling a more complete history of each of the chance C.P. Huntington trains. It's the repository of The List. And check out Chris Chirilla's books on Zippy and Guido. Ask your local bookstore, or of course, you can find them at your major online retailer of choice. I also recommend reading the 1943 article by D.L. Joslin titled, The Life Story of the Locomotive C.P. Huntington as Told by Itself, and I'll link to it in the show notes. 
It's a charming, chatty, first-person history of the original locomotive, and if you enjoyed this podcast, I think you would enjoy reading it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show. You might also leave a review or share the episode on social media. Your word of mouth brings new listeners to the abandoned carousel fold. Of course, you can find me across social media as The Abandoned Carousel. On Twitter, I'm at Carousel Abandon. I'll be back soon with another great episode, so I'll see you then. As Lucy Maud Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it. <laughs> <laughs>